This week, the Comics Guys Explain Quality Comics, Part 3. Yes, thank you, Ben. Welcome back to our third part of our show on quality comics. The last time we talked about the uh, beginnings of quality and, you know, how they uh, got their uh, first couple of big superheroes. Uh, and this time we're going to continue with that with yet more of their heroes getting their own quarterly and, you know, monthly titles. So, Darren, which one are we starting with? Who are we starting with? So it's 1941. And unlike most of the companies that we talk about, uh, you know, in this kind of an operation here, um, quality is not only making money, but they're being careful about it, right? They're saving their money and they're like doing, you know, sensible things. They've got their office set up in Connecticut where they're saving money on their studio by not paying New York City rents, that kind of thing, right? So everything is, uh, you know, they've, they've been very rational and slow and, you know, uh, careful about everything they've put together. And so the next thing that they do, at this point, they've got five regular monthly titles that are all selling quite well. And they decide their two biggest guys uh, should, get their, should get spun off into their own comics. Um, and so they say, okay, Dollman is doing really well uh, you know, in feature. Uncle Sam is doing really well in national. We're going to add two more titles that are just going to be quarterly but will be totally dedicated to just those two, those individual heroes, right? And they'll do an entire comic that doesn't have any backup features or anything. We'll just have multiple stories about the lead guys. Uh, and so those start up in early 1941. That brings them to seven titles, two of which are now coming out quarterly instead of monthly. Um, but those both get off to solid starts. They're, they're, they're well-liked characters. In the summer of 41, they add two more titles that will go on to be their most important titles, right? Like everything they've done to this point has set them up to the point where they are ready to now just kind of like explode nationally and become one of the biggest publishers in the country. And the first one of those that comes out is Military Comics. And Military Comics begins in August 1941. um, And the first feature, the lead characters from the from the first issue uh, is a series called Blackhawks. And the Blackhawks are a team, an international team of uh, pilots who wear matching uniforms and each has their own kind of, you know, like personality, basically. And they battle, uh, you know, Axis forces or, you know, Japanese forces that you know, in the Pacific, whatever. Um, they're kind of like straddle the line between being pulp heroes and superheroes. Um, they owe a great deal to the kind of pulp heroes like Captain Midnight, like uh, G8 and uh, other kind of, you know, pilot heroes. Um, but they're the villains that they face are so kind of like outrageous and outright wear costumes and stuff that they are actually super villains, not really pulp villains. And the heroes themselves, um, oh, like I said, they owe a lot to kind of like pulp traditions, but they all have, you know, like their matching uniforms. Visually, they look really good. So, uh, and very distinctive with their, you know, like uh, Hawk logo on the chest of their, you know, like black leather jackets, basically. So whether or not the Blackhawks actually count as a superhero uh, is, you know, it, it's debatable, right? Like none of them had any superpowers. Uh, none of them had, but, you know, 
neither did Batman, and he's a superhero. So, and and their costumes were really more like uniforms, right? And so it's kind of a question whether they fill all the you know all, all the categories to be one. But assuming that you accept that they are, they are one of the great, uh, you know, uh, series of the 1940s, and like one of the best remembered. They were co-created. Uh, Will Eisner uh, co-created the group, though he probably did not actually uh, write too many of the stories and certainly was out by issue four or five, you know, even if he was that far in. Most of the work actually creating them, once they were done as characters, uh, was done by Bob Powell, uh, who was one of the scriptwriters, and Chuck Quidera, who was the original artist. And it is absolutely true that by a year into the series, Chuck Quidera was basically doing it by himself. Um, and most of what we know about the Blackhawks as characters was developed and added by Quidera. So whoever, you know, if you, if you want to give credit for designing them to all three of them, uh, Quidera is definitely the guy who uh, deserves the most of the credit to, to uh, creating the team. The Blackhawks, there are seven of them most of the time. Uh, at different times, there are other members who kind of like come in and out, uh, but none of them last. These seven are the ones who are in almost every story. The leader is uh, just calls himself Blackhawk, uh, and uh, he is uh, Polish, and he's kind of you know like the, he's he is a very kind of like classical pulp hero. He can do everything. Not only is he like the world's greatest pilot, but he's also a brilliant scientist and a master detective and one of the greatest hand-to-hand -hand fighters, you know, like ever, whatever kind of thing. Um, and so he is kind of like the center of the action. And he's the one who has put together this team of, you know, like international pilots who are, you know, like fighting the Axis and evil scientists and that sort of thing. Um, his second in command is a guy named Stanislaus. Uh, and Stanislaus is a, you know, uh, also a brilliant pilot and uh, even more than Blackhawk is kind of like an acrobat, right? Like he's got, uh, he, he can do all sorts of crazy gymnastic stunts and he's a, you know, like an amazing athlete, even perhaps better than Blackhawk at, uh, you know, at doing that. Um, the rest of the regular team includes Andre, who is French uh, and is very kind of like stereotypically ooh-la-la -la French with a ridiculous accent. Um, he is the team demolitions expert and also the ladies' man, right? Like with his, you know, uh, uh, French mannerisms and everything, he is uh, very charming to the ladies and is always uh, kind of like wandering off the plot for a moment when he gets distracted by a beautiful woman. Uh, Chuck is the American member of the Blackhawks in a rare, uh, you know, thing for an American strip. The American member of the team was not the leader. Uh, and Chuck was the radio man. Chuck is the, you know, team communications and that sort of thing. Um, Hendrickson is the veteran of the team. He's older than the others. He's got a touch of gray in his hair and everything. And he is also the team's best sharpshooter. Uh, the most kind of, you know, like accurate man with a rifle. He can, you know, like hit a target at some ludicrous distance or whatever. Uh, and then there's Olaf the Swede. Olaf is uh, is Swedish, and his kind of like defining characteristics is that he's huge. He's much bigger than the others, and much stronger physically. He's kind of the you know circus strongman type uh, member of the team. The last member of the team is Chop Chop, and this being a quality comic of the '40s, this is the point where you have to address the you know really kind of like ugly and unpleasant racism. Um, of what is otherwise, uh, uh, you know, a very enjoyable series to read. Like The Spirit and uh, Ebony, 
Um, there is, you know, this an ethnic sidekick is just kind of like the order of the day. He is a gross Chinese stereotype. He starts the uh, the series as the team's cook, actually. They're uh, the guy, you know, and, and uh, is short. You know, probably stands, you know, under five feet tall. Um, and speaks in a horrendous Chinese, fakey Chinese ac- uh, accent. Over the time, over the years, they will kind of like become aware of what a problem he is as a character, right? And by the time you get to the late 40s into the early 50s, Chop Chop has become a much less racist stereotype um, and a much kind of like less gross character, gets promoted from being the team cook to actually being a pilot um and you know kind of like fighting alongside the rest of the team it it's still never quite right right like he is still usually drawn kind of offensively uh you know his uh, it's, his features are still very kind of like stereotypically you know chinaman uh uh, uh gross features right kind of thing um but it does improve over the course of the series uh and you know it's it's just kind of like a you know one of the unfortunate characteristics of golden age comics frequently is that this was done um just casually there was never even a a question that ethnic stereotype humor was just hilarious and was just something that uh, you know like went along with having action heroes um when I was doing research for this episode, I went on their Wikipedia page, and he actually has his own on the Blackhawks Wikipedia page. The evolution of Chop Chop is actually, unlike in a lot of the ones that we uh, we run into, um, where it's just not even addressed or it's right, where there's no evolution at all. At least he does; they do make an effort to make him better. And it's yeah. the same sort of thing with the Spirit, right? I mean, I, I the Spirit is one of the greatest you know comic uh, series ever created, and yet Ebony is still occasionally painful to read, right? Um, and so it's got the same kind of, you know, like the, the, the character was beloved at the time. They didn't think that this was a problem, right? It's never a question of like, oh, let's make fun of the Chinese guy. They, they thought the fact that he talked funny made him charming and entertaining and, you know, like, a you know, a worthwhile character. And so it's very kind of like difficult to look at that from a modern sensibility and not immediately have the, just like this kind of recoil reaction. Uh, uh, reading them, right? So, no, oh, yeah, he he also might be one of the worst. Like from the couple that I looked at, he might be one of the most offensive ones I've uh, I've seen. Yeah, uh, well, the quality, great. unfortunately, had an editorial, you know, like problem with this, right? Like this was a recurring thing throughout a bunch of their different series, and it's one of kind of like the black marks on the record of the company is that this was such a recurring source of quote unquote humor. Um. You know that that uh, several of their heroes have, uh, you know, horrible ethnic stereotype sidekicks, basically. Yeah. Um, there is a a woman uh, member of the team uh, who shows up later in the fifties. She does not start uh, uh, that way um, at, at this point. But Lady Lady Blackhawk is a DC creation, not a uh, quality creation. Um, so the Blackhawks, you know, they 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 battle. Uh, uh, you know, the Axis forces primarily during the war. Um, and eventually they kind of like expand their remit to the point where they're like, you know, discovering ancient lost civilizations or battling mad scientists. Um, of course, once you get into the 50s, they change to fighting the Russians, um, you know, as a, as a uh, recurring uh, point. 
Um, and, you know, Blackhawks kind of like sits as one of this collection of aviator heroes as just one of kind of like the best of the series, right? And there were a bunch of other ones that were all kind of, uh, you know, aware of each other and and stealing from each other. Like I said, Captain Midnight, G8, Airboy. Um, do you remember, if you remember re- much more recently, the Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow movie, um, Sky Captain is absolutely a reference back to that kind of hero and to Black Hawk specifically. Um, so they, uh, they battle uh, supervillains, as I said, for uh, um, much more so than just ordinary Nazi soldiers or whatever. Like most of the uh, m- most of the kind of like more realistic wartime heroes, um, there was a Nazi pilot, a Nazi villain uh, called King Shark, who was a recurring bad guy and continued to be a menace to the team well after the war was over, because he somehow had gotten away um, and was still causing trouble on his own. Um, Separate from, you know, working for Hitler, which is why he started. Um, the most famous Blackhawk bad guy, of course, is not even a person. It's a device that was called the War Wheel. And the War Wheel is just an enormous multiple story high wheel, basically, that kind of like rolls uh, smashing over things, you know, made of steel, basically, um, with a central, uh, like, uh, 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 bridge basically you know like a a unit that hung within the center of the wheel from which it was controlled and then the wheel was mounted with you know like enormous cannons and and uh, artillery uh to destroy everything in its path and it's like you know 50 feet high um that is a thing that has uh, become a recurring piece of tech in the dc universe it's probably dc's favorite thing about the blackhawks is the recurring appearances of the war wheel um, and because DC places it in World War II and makes it a Nazi device, everybody thinks that the war wheel came from the Nazis. But the it did not actually appear in Blackhawk until 1952. Um, and so the uh, it was actually the Russians um, who, at the time, built the war wheel. And uh, you know, like the the Blackhawks of quality comics basically faced it as a Soviet problem, not a Nazi problem. But that's been kind of, you know, retconned so frequently in DC that everybody assumes that it was uh, originally that way. Um, so the uh, Blackhawks were, like I said, Chuck Quidera was the primary guy. Um, but about a year into the series, in the summer of 1942, Quidera got drafted and was replaced on Blackhawk by Reed Crandall. And Reed Crandall is, of course, one of my favorite uh, Golden Age uh, artists, one of the great uh, you know, artists of the 40s, one of the great stylized uh, uh, creators of the period. And it's his art that most people remember when they're thinking about like why the Blackhawks were so cool, when they have an image in their head of what the Blackhawks look like. Um, it's generally the Reed Crandall art. When uh, Quadera got out of the army, he returned to working for Quality, um, and actually became the art director for Quality, and uh, you know the chief, uh, you know one of the the senior editors there. But even he had to acknowledge that Reed Crandall's art had become so popular that even with him back, they kept Crandall doing the pencils, and Quidera would just ink uh, Crandall's pencils on it, and so both of them got art art credits um, at a time when 
inking had not yet been kind of like separated from penciling for most creators, right? Like the Marvel, uh, you know, uh, assembly line version of like how comics were put together um, hadn't really like started by this point. This was, you know, uh, still in the the mid to late forties. Right. And so the idea of like crediting both a penciler and an inker as two different people was a relatively new concept that like Blackhawk basically in invented. Um, besides those two other writers on Blackhawk, um, Will Eisner did uh, do some additional scripts for it. Bill Finger uh, did some well-known scripts for Black Hawk. He was the, uh, you know, the, the, the primary uh, creator of Batman, though Bob Kane gets most of the credit. Uh, Finger is also the guy, obviously, who created uh, Robin, uh, the Joker, uh, with Jerry Robinson and Catwoman. So he's kind of the, you know, one of the key Batman creators. Um, also, uh, Manly Wade Wellman, who is a very well-known fantasy author, um, got his start as a professional writer writing scripts for Blackhawk uh, in the mid to late 40s. The Blackhawks flew uh, very distinctive looking jets, right? Um, and this was at a time when the fan base, especially for you know kids for uh, this kind of comic, there was a subset of them who were absolute nerds about the tech that was being used, right? That they really cared that the planes were accurate and that the tanks were accurate and that sort of thing. And Blackhawk was, if that was your thing, if you were into, you know, like accurate drawings that like looked like what the actual, uh, you know, planes and tanks and whatever of the war uh, were doing, then Blackhawk was your thing, right? Because Blackhawk was well known to be one of the most accurate. Um, except that the planes that they flew were very well-known uh, designs that never actually were made by real, uh, you know, like army pilots, right? It was called the, the Grumman XF-5F Skyrocket. And it was a famous piece of design, a famous kind of like looking plane, basically, um, that is mostly noted for the fact that its nose did not extend past the wings, right? Like the wings were so far forward that the nose actually came to a stop before, uh, you know, like you finished the plane of the wings up front, right? So there was kind of like a ridge in the front of the plane where the actual leading edge of the wings were. Um, and the cockpit was set back, uh, uh, you know, like far enough behind it so that the, the, almost the entirety of the wheel of the wings were ahead of the pilot. Um, this was a great looking design, right? This was a sexy looking plane. This was a very impressive looking thing. And it was famous as a model uh, because it had, it had genuinely been built and been tested and had very good trials, but it was decided that, or was determined that it was too expensive to mass produce them. To actually make one of these things was too expensive. The uh, Grumman couldn't turn them out fast enough. So Grumman changed the F5F design uh, to the F7F, which was the kind that actually saw uh, action in the war, right? And so the F7F had its wings pulled back farther. The nose extends beyond it. So the look of the plane was different, um, as well as you know, like the materials being cheaper and something that they could actually turn out faster. Um, 
but everybody knew what the F5F actually looked like. And it was kind of like famous for its like design, mostly because it was that super cool plane that the Blackhawks flew, right? So it kind of like went on to be perhaps the most famous unproduced plane, except to maybe like the Spruce Goose or something, right? Like, I mean, like it, it's gone down in history as like a, a, a well-loved plane that never actually flew. Um, this lasted, of course, until like uh, 1949, by which point uh, jets were starting to come around. And since Blackhawk was still active as a series at that point, they had to switch away from the Skyrockets um, to start flying jets because, you know, that's why, why get left behind by actual technology. So they went in starting in 1949, uh, the Blackhawks all flew F-84 Thunder Jets first. And then eventually, over the next year or two, after kind of like trying out several designs, uh, the artists basically settled on the Lockheed XF-90 uh, as being the planes that the, the, the Blackhawks flew. And that was pretty much the one they flew pretty, pretty much the, uh, through the 50s. So Blackhawk is a tremendous success right out the door, right? Um, it's, a, it's a smash hit. And within a year or two, it has become, and military, as featuring Blackhawk, uh, becomes basically one of the serious contenders for the best-selling title in comics. It is certainly, nobody's really quite certain of the exact numbers, but everybody pretty much agrees that it's the, the best-selling title during the war was one of Captain Marvel, Superman, or Blackhawk. Right? There's, those are really the only three contenders. You know, so Blackhawk was somewhere between first and third and definitely ahead of everybody else, including like Batman, right? Like all the, you know, the, 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 the second best guy at DC uh, was certainly blown away. Blackhawk absolutely outsold Batman. Um, it would go on. It was such a popular series that it would actually be one of the very few strips. Once again, assuming that you count Blackhawk as a superhero and there are people who don't, um, but assuming that you do, he kind of counts as one of the very few survivors of the great superhero collapse of the early 50s that we've talked about in our several of our other uh, publisher stories, right? That, that between, say, 1950 and 1952, almost all of the superhero titles got canceled. Um, were being replaced by other genres that had become more popular, you know, like superheroes are kind of like dying off. And so since Blackhawk was published consecutively from 1941 to 1969, the only other superheroes who can make that claim are basically Superman and Superboy, Batman, Wonder Woman, and if you count foreign titles, The, the Phantom, because um, The Phantom was always much more popular in Europe than he was in America. And so was actually consecutively published in Europe well past the time that like Phantom Comics were selling um, in the U.S. That's really impressive. It makes it uh, make more sense to me. I, I was never quite sure uh, when they re-released uh, Blackhawks for the New Fifty Two. I was very that was always one that kind of confused me. But I guess if it was such a like big deal back in the day, it kind of makes sense to to bring it back. Absolutely. And they've tried to bring it back several times. It's never, you know, there, there have been multiple efforts to like do the Blackhawks again and to try to recapture um, that original, you know, the, 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 the power behind that because there were so many fans at the time and it was so beloved. But there were efforts in the 60s and the 70s to, to, to bring them back. Um, the 70s series was actually written primarily by Mark Evanier. 
um, who got started as Jack Kirby's assistant, basically, um, and was an enormous, like Roy Thomas, was an enormous fan of old-timey 40s and 50s comics. So he brought back the, the, the thing for, in DC for the 70s, but it didn't really work. Um, in the 80s, there was a great limited series by Howard Jakin. Uh, of Blackhawk that really recast them. First of all, it, it put them back in the forties where they belong, you know, really uh, by, for, by most people's opinions um, and turned the Blackhawk series, the Blackhawk characters into a much more kind of like adult uh, world war two area era espionage adventure. Right. And it's, a, it's definitely got adult contact. It was uh, uh, content. It was very uh, violent and there's a couple of sex scenes in it too. So it was kind of, you know, almost scandalous as a superhero title in 1988. Um, and DC tried to follow up the success of that limited series several times and it never really kicked in. As you say, they have been around, they, they, they made it through, you know, they're, they're part of Flashpoint. They kind of were a recurring plot device uh, for DC throughout the 90s and 2000s, and now are part of the DC universe uh, as kind of like a, a bigger thing. Uh, the Blackhawk uh, team that is currently in DC does not include any of these guys, right? Like they've just basically taken the name Blackhawks, and it is now a team of you know interdimensional uh, adventurers fighting the you know the, the dark universes and everything, and has like Hawkgirl basically as the team leader. Um, and completely has abandoned all of the original characters um, from Blackhawk. So we'll come back to talking about Blackhawk later on, and like the you know the, the the farther point. But at this point now, Blackhawk hits so hard and so big that quality can now kind of like basically consider itself to be one of the serious superhero comic publishers. You know, it's it, it's basically National Fawcett and them, and then. There's the others, you know, they were certainly well ahead of Timely, they were well ahead of MLJ, they were well ahead of Fox and all the other ones. Quality has now become one of what is effectively now a big three uh, publishers in the 40s. Um, military would have other features for a while. Um, starting from issue number one, there are uh, uh, several other uh, strips in it. The main ones that we uh, refer to, the ones that were actually superhero or superhero related, the only straight up I wear a costume superhero superhero in military was Miss America, um, who seems kind of out of place uh, in a title actually called military because uh, you know she was uh, uh, you know not really a member of the army because she was a woman obviously. Um, she is uh, a secretary. Uh, working for the army, uh, you know, as a, in a clerical job, basically. And uh, her name is Joan Dale. And she has a dream in which the Statue of Liberty uh, comes to her and tells her that, uh, you know, she is needed to, uh, you know, fight for justice and liberty and against the forces of evil, uh, etc., and gives her superpowers. And when she wakes up, she has superpowers and a costume. Um, but is still maintaining her identity, you know, as a clerical worker, uh, you know, for the army. Her superpowers were really actually kind of cool at the time. She basically had the power to change objects, to change the form and shape and everything of small items. Um, and the, the biggest uh, kind of like uh, uh, limit on her powers was the size of the object, not the actual like complexity of the change, right? She could turn bullets into flowers if you shot at her. You know, but she couldn't turn uh, like a really she couldn't turn a car into anything because that was too big. 
And that's kind of like an, an interesting, you know, restriction, right? You could do pretty much anything as long as it was small scale, right? Like you put handcuffs on her and she would just look at them and the handcuffs would turn into, you know, ice cream or something and she would just get out, right? <laughs> um, what's that? I said, yeah, that's a cool power set. Yeah. It, it's really kind of like interesting. It's, it's unusually like creative for the 40s. Um, unfortunately, she was not a very big hit and uh, was, you know, canceled after issue seven. Uh, so we never got to see much of her again until she was brought back by DC later on uh, when they acquired all of these guys. Uh, the other uh, kind of like main hero in the starting from the first issue is a strip called Blue Tracer. And Blue Tracer is kind of like Red Torpedo uh, that we talked about last episode for it. It's a guy named William Dunn. And basically, he invents a plane uh, that can do all kind of other stuff, like go submersible and that sort of thing, and has all sorts of cool gadgets and everything on it. Um, so it is a he's a pilot hero like Blackhawk. He doesn't have a team, and his adventures are not nearly as realistic as Blackhawk's, right? Like Blackhawk flies you know, genuine military equipment and Blue Tracer that just flies a completely ridiculous superplane by himself. Over the course of the next uh, couple of years, they try out a couple of more backup stories for Blackhawk. Um, there's a character called uh, Yankee, Yankee Eagle, uh, who is a superhero, military superhero called Jerry Noble, whose superpower was that he could talk to animals. That's kind of cool, but also kind of strange for, for a strip. Um, he got canceled even faster than Miss America did. He actually did not make it past issue number five. Um, from issues nine through 16 of Military, there was a backup feature called Phantom Clipper, which is not superhero at all, but is like sufficiently weird that it's you know kind of like worth a mention. Um, the Phantom Clipper was in fact a, uh, an, an allied, an American uh, naval vessel that for some unknown reason was disguised to look like a pirate ship, but it somehow still had all kind of, you know, like modern equipment on everything on it and everything. And because it was disguised as a pirate ship, somehow the bad guys always like underestimated it. They didn't think it was real or they didn't think it was like actually a military vessel until it like snuck up on them and then shot the shit out of them. <laughs> you know, that sounds like the, the setup for like one uh, skit on Saturday Night Live where like yeah right one, one superheroes uh, how do you do that multiple times <laughs> they, they did they I'll, I'll, they it lasted eight times before they ran out of ideas basically right it was uh, lasted from issue nine to issue sixteen uh, before everybody kind of agreed that this is just a dumb crazy idea and it doesn't actually work and they hadn't really developed the crew of the ship to have any sort of like interesting personalities or anything unlike Blackhawk. So by the time they get to about issue 16 or so, they're like, you know what? The heck with this. We shouldn't even bother trying. Let's just write more Blackhawk stories. Right. So military became basically all Blackhawk by, you know, a year and a half into the series. That sounds like it was a very popular comic. Yeah, absolutely. Very few didn't have backups at the time. so that makes Exactly. Right. Well, like I said, they had just created their first ones without backups for the quarterlies. Right, and we'll get to Blackhawk. Will also get its own quarterly relatively soon. We'll get to that in a bit. Um, but the um, so Dollman had his own, and Uncle Sam had his own. But they didn't even trust those enough to put out one every month. Right? They were like, "That's too many for one hero." The, the readers will get bored. They had, they had a you know very kind of like low opinion of the you know willingness of like the you know of, of the fans to read multiple stories about the same character until 
DC had the kind of successes that it did with its with, with Superman and Batman. Right, Superman and Batman proved that kids would pick up a comic that had three or four Batman stories in it, and not be bored by that. Yeah, a couple months ago, I figured out they were they were selling, uh, I think, six Batman like new comics that month. That month, right? Yeah, like yeah, that's not even or Spider Man, right? Like or or you know, or God forbid, the X Men, right? But at least the X Men have different characters in each one. So yeah, I usually find the X Men one to be a little bit like they're usually pretty disconnected, right? Well, it's why Batman has developed such like a, you know, sizable supporting cast at this point is because, you know, they have so many pages to fill about, uh, you know, his adventures. So you cannot possibly do all this in one month. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The other big title that launches from quality uh, in the summer of 41, in August of 1941. So they've done military. Right. So they're like, okay, well, we need another kind of theme for our for our heroes. We need a theme for our comics. We kind of. Uh, where you know the the first few were just called something actiony, right? They were called crack and smash and hit because that just meant that they were action heroes. But you know, military was like, oh, these guys are all going to have something in common. They're all going to be related, and it's you know, it's it's going to have something to do with the war effort. Um, so the other comic that they did, uh, the theme that they were built around, and the actual title of the comic was called Police Comics. And in this case, now these would all be, you know, like law enforcement officials, basically, uh, you know, for the most part, protecting the home front as opposed to, you know, going abroad and punching out Nazis in Europe. Um, but instead, you know, keeping us safe here at home while the war was going on. Um, and so police comic began with, you know, like an entire set of, uh, of, of features the same way. Um, uh, the same way, you know, most of their other their their anthology titles all began. The character who is on the cover for the first four issues of Police is not the one who would go on to be famous. Uh, they genuinely did not have any idea that the character that the that the, the breakout character from this series uh, was going to be the breakout character when he started. Uh, the first character that they introduced was a character called Firebrand, and Firebrand was uh, a very early Reed Crandall character. And so the art on Firebrand is great. It's super exciting and very, you know, like entertaining to to read. The character is dull as toast. Um, Firebrand is a, uh, you know, millionaire playboy uh, who uh, has a, you know, a beautiful girlfriend, and his father is a, you know, super rich industrialist, and he has a bodyguard slash sidekick called Slugger Dunn. Uh, who used to be the you know was the was the heavyweight champ previously, um, and had, you know quit boxing to become a bodyguard basically. And so Firebrand uh, is Playboy Rod Riley, and the main thing everybody remembers about Firebrand is that for some reason Reed Crandall drew his costume um, in the first few issues so that like his his shirt basically is transparent, right? Like you can literally see his entire torso through the shirt. And depending on how much bother he actually they put into actually doing coloring or ishing, sometimes it looks completely transparent, right? Like literally, he's just wearing an invisible shirt um, that you can only see the outlines of, right? Like the collar and everything. It's a very strange look. Uh, later artists who came along kind of changed it and said he doesn't really wear a transparent shirt. He wears a pink shirt that just happens to be tight, and it just happens to be the same color as his skin. Right to try to make this character's costume like make any sort of sense, um, but if you ever get a chance to you know like look up what the actual character looked like uh, in the forties, you know do a quick uh, uh, Google search or something for early shots of Firebrand. He's a completely ridiculous looking character. 
um, and, you know, died relatively quickly, uh, you know, was just out of lack of interest. Um, the character that everybody remembers for uh, Police, that debuted in Police, is Plastic Man. And Plastic Man was created by Jack Cole, who was a brilliant cartoonist, a brilliant humor cartoonist, unlike most of the people who were working on superhero stuff at the time, right? Uh, you know, everybody wanted to be either Reed Crandall or Jack Kirby at this point, and, you know, kind of getting away from the Lou Fine styles. But so they had, you know, characters who were just rippling with muscles and having all kind of like action shots and jumping out of panels, smashing through windows, doing all kind of stuff, and just being these physical marvels, right? Plastic Man is he's made of plastic. He's he's kind of like rubbery looking. He doesn't really have much in the way of muscles. Um, he looks kind of, you know, silly and a little kind of doughy, right? He looks soft, <laughs> you know. Um, but Jack Cole was a master cartoonist, a master at kind of like the physical comedy of superheroing. So the story of Jack Cole, uh, the story of uh, of Plastic Man is Eel O'Brien, who is a, a small town crook. Uh, and is a member of a gang uh, that are, you know, like committing holdups and, and robberies. And uh, he, they, they rob a chemical factory, and it goes badly. The cops show up, and there's a shootout at the warehouse, and Eel gets shot in the shoulder, and he falls in front of like a pallet of barrels that are containing all of these weird toxic chemicals. And the, the cops keep shooting, and they put a hole in one of the barrels. And the toxic goo sprays out and it covers poor Eel's body and it gets into his bullet wound, right? He calls out for help to his, you know, to his partners in his in his gang, but they leave him behind in order to escape. Uh, you know, they don't come back for him, basically. And so he kind of gets up, like the somehow he manages to get past the police anyway. But now he's feeling all strange and woozy, and he, you know, like wanders out of town to like a mountain. The last shot you sing uh in the woods at the base of like that's just outside of town and when he wakes up he finds himself in this strange monastery on the mountain where he has being nursed back to health by like an order of monks um and uh you know they are they, they for no reason other than just you know goodness basically they are you know nursing him back to life and when the police come looking for him, the monks turn them away. They say, oh, yeah, he's not. We don't have anybody like that here. Uh, you know, we don't know what you're talking about. And E.L. O'Brien is so overcome by the kindness of these monks and so incensed that his, you know, gang friends, his, his fellow, you know, like mobsters abandoned him to die, basically, that he, you know, uh, has a complete change of heart, does a complete face turn and decides to become a good guy. At the same time, he discovers that the weird chemicals that like poured into his gunshot wound, uh, you know, while he was lying there, have given him the superpower to stretch like rubber, right? To actually, you know, kind of like extend his arms and legs and to change his shape, et cetera, and just, you know, like become, uh, you know, basically an elastic person um, of the type that will be, you know, like ripped off a hundred times afterwards, right? The Mr. Fantastic and the elongated man, et cetera, et cetera. These are all owe their existence to the popularity of Plastic Man originally. It was the first guy with this kind of like set of powers. Um, so at first he kind of like maintains his identity as Eel O'Brien so that he can find out about crimes and then thwart them as Plastic Man. 
right? Like he will go and, you know, like hang out at bars or whatever and like find out what his old criminal friends are up to and then go as Plastic Man and stop their crimes. Eventually, as Jack Cole's stories become more and more outrageous, Eel O'Brien as a secret identity pretty much goes away. It was just kind of in the way of things. And it was kind of like too serious an idea for, you know, Plastic Man to go on. Um, plastic, you have to also keeping in mind the, 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 the context of the time, right? Like plastic is the, you know, the material of the future, right? It had actually been invented quite some time ago, but now it's the 1940s and with the, you know, kind of like leaps ahead in technology and, and material science, uh, plastic is the thing that everything cool is being made out of now, right? So the idea of like somebody being called plastic man in context meant a lot more kind of like forward thinking, like an exciting new thing than it does to us today, right? To be called plastic man in the forties was kind of like to be being called like the nuclear man in the seventies or something, right? Like it's the cool, interesting science that's in the news all the time. Um, well, I've always thought that's kind of a, it was kind of a weird name, but that makes a lot more sense because he's not right. Like, yeah. I think of his more, he's more rubbery than he is plastic. Like it sure. in his head. But, like, but that was like the, the, you know, the advantage of plastic was that it could be shaped and molded, right? Like right. that was one of the things that was, you know, cool about it. So makes perfect sense. Right. So uh, very quickly, uh, he gets, um, you know, it, it, the, the, the question becomes, right? Like it's, you know, what, what's he going to do? Uh, what's the, the structure of his stories going forward? And very quickly, because this is police comics, he winds up getting contacted by the FBI and recruited into being like literally an agent of the FBI, uh, solving crimes and protecting the home front from whatever weird stuff that is happening. Um, very soon, he picks up a sidekick, Woozy Winks. Uh, Woozy is a um, well, he's kind of an idiot, basically. <laughs> he's 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 much more the source of comedy in the series, uh, you know, personally than Plastic Man is. Um, Woozy actually uh, once saved the life of a powerful wizard and was rewarded for that by basically becoming uh, uh, indestructible, be- becoming invulnerable. Um, literally, he would just have like the most ridiculous luck, like nature itself would move to protect him from all of the idiot things that he did that should have killed him. Right. Like, you know, he would he would fall off a building and suddenly like a strong breeze would like blow him back to the roof or something. Right. Like he literally could not die no matter how much, you know, ridiculous stuff that he that he did. Um, And so he became Plastic Man's sidekick. And the thing to kind of like understand, because if you read Plastic Man today, if you read Plastic Man at any point in the last 60, 70 years, um, Plastic Man is a comedy character. Right. He's the joke teller. You know, when Grant Morrison puts him on the Justice League, he's the guy telling jokes and doing wacky stuff and, you know, changing his form into a silly shape or something or, you know, hilariously turning himself into a dress so that, you know, Wonder Woman will wear him and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, That's not really the plastic man that Jack Cole created in the in the series in the 40s into the early 50s. Plastic man is kind of the straight man. Right. Like the situation is always weird. The situation is always crazy. The villains that he fights are nuts. His sidekick is an idiot. And the way that he copes with this weirdness is always to change his shape is to is to turn into something comically ridiculous. Right. And then deal with that problem. He becomes he disguises himself and he's a car or he disguises himself as a vase 
and then somebody puts flowers in him or something, right? And he's, you know, like spying on what's going on because nobody notices they have a weird new vase that they didn't have before, right? But he's kind of, he doesn't tell jokes. The jokes are all in the physical comedy of what he was doing, right? And so it's, it's if you go back and look at those strips, first of all, they're brilliant. There are these amazing sketches of like physical comedy that, you know, John Cleese would be delighted to do a bit as funny as some of these things are, right? But it's always, it's not him telling a joke. It's not him being wacky. It's him being, you know, responding to a crazy other thing that has happened without him, right? The universe is what's crazy. He's the sane one, right? And, you know, he has to change shape to deal with the, you know, the insanity of, like, what's going on around him. Um I've, I've never really seen Kyle Baker's uh, plastic man occasionally gets it occasionally gets him right. But even Kyle Baker, you know, still has him being goofier than plastic man ever really was in the comics. Cause plastic man's not goofy in the forties, you know, he's, uh, he's, or he's not any more. He's certainly the least goofy person in the room. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It's news to me. I've always thought he was a comedy character. Yeah. Well, it is comedy, right? Like the series, the strips are always funny. But it's not him generating the joke, right? He's not the one making fun of people or anything like that. Um, you know, it's the, the 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 world is crazy. The bad guys that he faces are crazy. Woozy's an idiot. You know, whatever else is going on in the world is is the problem, and he has to you know like turn into a funny shape to 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 solve it, right? I mostly uh, think of him and the him and Batman teaming up. Sure, right, exactly. The brave and the bold runs and, and that sort of things. Yeah, absolutely. Like an idiot, and yes. Yeah, Batman. that's not, I mean, once again, that's that's not the original character. Right. Sometimes those are brilliant, right? Like I said, I, mm-hmm. I love Morrison Plastic Man in Justice League, but it's not the same guy. Right, you know? totally different character, except for the look. Gotcha. Right. The other uh, great, the, the other characters that were introduced in Police, they had actually several more superhero type characters as opposed to military. These guys were st- obviously straight up superheroes. Um. The uh, the the most notable of them is probably uh, the Human Bomb. Human Bomb is a chemist named Roy Lincoln, and uh, he and his dad uh, invent a powerful explosive called Twenty Seven QRX. An explosive Twenty Seven QRX is going to change this, the the scope of the war. It's an incredibly powerful explosive in very small amounts. And when our army actually gets a hold of it, uh, you know, we figure out how to how to deploy it. It will be a huge benefit to our our missiles and our bombs and our torpedoes, et cetera, et cetera. Except the Nazis discover that it's that it exists, and they break into his lab uh, to steal it. And in order to keep it away from the Nazis, the only way he has to keep it is to drink it. Uh, which you know, sure, brilliant. That's a great plan. That's that will totally work. And so it, his body is transformed by drinking this chemical liquid explosive, basically, to the point now where his skin will now explode anything that he touches. Right? He can punch a wall and create an explosion that's like ten tons of dynamite or ten pounds of dynamite or whatever, and just blow the wall into tiny pieces. Um, but this is a problem, obviously, because you can't you know shake hands with him or anything. Right? In order to protect the society around him uh, from coming into contact with his skin, uh, he has to wear a special suit that is made of something called fibro wax. And fibro wax is somehow the only substance uh, that uh, you, that Roy can wear uh, that does not explode upon contact with his skin, right? So he has a very kind of like distinctive 
costume style, which looks kind of like a hazmat suit, right? Like it's got a, you know, it's got a helmet on the top with a, with a face plate that you can like see through. And then, you know, and, and it's got big bulky, uh, you know, boots and, and the pants are, everything looks oversized on it. Um, and when he comes into a situation, the first thing he does is take off his like oversized glove and then punch something to make it explode. Right. That's a, you know, it's a great kind of like visual look. Um, it's really one of the earliest characters, uh, whose powers are kind of a pain in the ass, right? Like in the golden age, for the most part, getting superpowers is generally an unalloyed good thing, right? Nobody's ever sad that they got superpowers in the 1940s, right? Like it's a, superpowers are always awesome. There's no character like the thing or metamorpho or somebody like that who just wishes they could go back to being normal. Um, Roy doesn't really quite, you know, Human Bomb doesn't necessarily wish he could go back to being normal because he is definitely, you know, happy to be using his powers to fight Nazis and protect the home front and, you know, save the world and that sort of thing. Um, but he, the, the strip does, in fact, multiple times kind of like include situations in which his life is made complicated by the fact that he has to wear the suit, right? Like he can't disguise himself. He can't put on, you know, like a different set of clothes and go sneaking around to find what, what the bad guys are up to, right? Like he's stuck in this suit most of the time. Um, and so like, he's kind of one of the very first superheroes to have that sense of maybe this is not 100% a great thing, right? Like maybe my problems are actually sometimes more of, of a, a hindrance than a help. Um, which was a very original concept at the time. And of course, you know, it was not terribly well noticed at the time, but it's the sort of character or one of the characters that Stanley certainly had in mind when he started creating, you know, these characters who were like the thing or, or somebody who was, or, you know, somebody whose powers were, you know, not the best thing to happen to them, not the greatest thing in their lives. Um, the other major character introduced in Police Number One is Phantom Lady. Uh, Phantom Lady is uh, Sandra Knight. She is a socialite. She's the daughter of a senator. Uh, so you know, you immediately see her teaming up with uh, Black Condor, who you know is pretending to be a senator. Um, and uh, she is also somehow a brilliant scientist, though this is never really explained how she got to be that way. And she has invented an, a device called the Black Lantern. And a black lantern uh, shines these kind of like cones of darkness into an area. And somehow she can see through it, but like her opponents are blinded by it, right? Like her primary like way of defeating people was to like shine the black lantern in their eyes. And then they couldn't see and she could. And then she would come up and, you know, kick snot out of them while they were while they were blinded. Um, that's basically the only power that she had. The DC versions of the, her made her considerably more powerful. And instead of having to hold the lantern, they made them, you know, into like a wristband kind of thing um, and gave her other powers on top of that. So she's, you know, became much more powerful. But the, the version of her that just appears in quality, literally the only thing she can do is, you know, to shine this strange black lantern on people. Um, the main reason we remember Phantom Lady is because she was created by Arthur Petty. Uh, Arthur Petty was famous even at the time for what was called good girl in quote art. Uh, he drew beautiful women and Phantom Lady is one of the most notable beautiful women that he drew. Um, you know, that's, it was, uh, uh, always in, you know, like the best of taste kind of thing, right? Like there, there was, there was no nudity, but there were an awful lot of lingerie shots. 
an awful lot of, you know, like we catch her, we, we show up just in time as she's changing into her costume uh, kind of thing. And so she is well remembered as one of kind of like the most, uh, you know, exotic voluptuous you know heroines of the 40 kind of things she had a she had a very impressive figure um and uh you know most versions of her even into the uh, 70s and 80s or whatever still almost kind of like exaggerated uh the the ridiculous shortness of her costume right like the very small uh the, the, the there were a lot of gaps in the costume so um petty went to uh dc after the war and was one of the artists who worked on justice society uh, for All Stars last couple of years, and uh, you know, did the same kind of thing, basically creating Black Canary there. Um, so you know, that was another similar character. He did not actually create Black Canary, but he's the one who drew Black Canary the way people remember her, <laughs> you know, from the forties. So, uh, so that was the those were the characters. Oh, the, there was one other feature in uh, notable feature in the first issue of uh, Police, who was a guy called Mouthpiece. And Mouthpiece was, uh, you know, uh, uh, another district attorney whose name was Bill Perkins, who, like all of the other district attorneys in the comics at the time, was, you know, just absolutely thought it was terrible that we were letting criminals go. Uh, and so, you know, like put on a mask and a suit, basically, to fight crime at night and basically became yet another uh, spirit ripoff. Um whose, you know, only interesting shtick about him was that he was actually a lawyer and, like, occasionally the stories would involve him having to know some, like, legal fact or something like that. Uh, over the course of time, um, police also picked up a, a few other characters. There was a secret agent called 7-Eleven. Uh, there was a guy called Destiny, who was another mystery man whose superpower was that he could see the future. Right. And so occasionally, like, you know, the hand of fate would, you know, turn up basically and basically teleport him to a location where a crime was about to happen. Uh, and then he would get involved in, you know, like fighting that that crime or he would be just in time to see a murder and then pursue the murderer or something. Sometimes he wasn't in time to actually stop the crime, but he, you know, could help like deal with cleaning it up afterwards. Um, and uh, the one of the interesting things about him is that we never found out what his real name was. Uh, and the last guy was another guy called Manhunter. DC had a Manhunter that was created by Jack Kirby. Um, Quality had a Manhunter who was uh, a cop named Dan Richards, um, whose brother was framed for a crime he didn't commit. And uh, Dan found himself as a cop unable to prove that his brother didn't do it. So once again, he had to put on a costumed identity and basically go out and break the law in order to prove that his father was in, uh, his brother was innocent. Uh, and so... You know that worked out so well that he kept putting on a costume um, for quite some time. The the most interesting thing about Manhunter, apart from the fact that he was you know uh, stealing the name of another character, um, was that he had a uh, a dog sidekick starting later on in the series. He had a dog named Thor uh, who would help him fight crime. So that's always a good thing to have. Um, Plastic Man obviously becomes the hit from the beginning. Firebrand is on the cover for no good reason for the first four issues, starting with issue number five. It did, the the series definitely becomes police comics featuring Plastic Man, and Plastic Man is on the cover for the duration uh, of the series going forward. So, um, so now we've got seven hits, right? Like now this is a this is a big deal. The the uh, 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 
quality has become a, a serious publisher at this point they're pretty much full up right like they are, they they can't really get uh enough distribution or whatever to get more titles on the on the um on the stands and at that point they were probably having difficulty finding enough people to actually fill the material that they have so they basically stop expanding at that point and keep these seven titles uh or nine titles really seven monthly and then two quarterly um uh, uh, going throughout the war, they don't uh, they don't add any additional ones. Will Eisner gets drafted in 1942, so like several of the other, like Quidera and several other uh, creatives on the uh, in the company, they basically start losing time to you know like they they have to travel abroad or whatever. They're going to you know join the army, they're they're or the navy or whatever, right? They're getting into the into the actual war, and so more and more quality is working less with uh, adults. And, you know, like kind of like people at the height of their powers and more and more like every other publisher are either drawing on having kids coming in like and by kids, I mean, you know, teenagers or whatever coming in to actually do some of the work for them or older people uh, coming to comics from, you know, some previous some some different position or whatever being illustrators of some sort um, who were too old to be drafted and since quality was not fighting for the pool of people who actually lived in New York City. Uh, but was still based in Stanford, Connecticut. They kind of had access to a almost completely different set of creators um, that were, you know, like out in Connecticut to Rhode Island, basically to uh, to to work with. And so they brought a number of people into, uh, you know, like work on to to fill out the rest of the titles, right, and and to do the the second and third stories in a title. Uncle Sam Quarterly in 1943 is not selling as well as the rest of them. It's the worst selling of the nine titles that they have. Uncle Sam just isn't that big a character. And so rather than continue with it, they basically cancel uh, Uncle Sam Quarterly after eight issues. And starting from the same numbering, they give Blackhawk a quarterly. Uh, and so Blackhawk picks up. There is no Blackhawk Quarterly number one, right? There's never There, there was not a Blackhawk number one. The first issue of Blackhawk solo series is starts with number nine and will run up to you know 100 and whatever uh plastic man also gets his own series he graduates i mean he continues to be featured in police but then also gets a quarterly of his own uh doing solo stuff starting in 1943 so by that point now we're up to about 10 titles um in 1944 uh but busy arnold and uh eisner um, who now has basically had to give up doing the Spirit Quarterly. Spirit is still being published uh, with other people working on it. And uh, Busy Arnold talking to Will Eisner uh, cuts a deal basically that allows quality to start reprinting some of the comics from the newspaper series. Uh, and so the 11th title that quality picks up is a quarterly that actually collects the newspaper stories of the Spirit. So it goes back to the stuff from before the war. It starts in 1944, but it starts reprinting comics from 1940 uh, that had appeared in the Sunday newspapers and becomes the, the 11th title that they will put out. Uh, when they get to literally the end of the war in 1945, um, they start you know, like looking to uh, 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 modernize and update, right? 1945, calling a comic military seems kind of outdated once the war is coming to an end. So even though uh, it's now entirely Blackhawk Black Hawk series, uh, they change the name of the title 
of military comics to modern comics. Um, and modern comics because, becomes the name of the comic going forward uh, starting in 1944 uh, or in, in uh, 1945. Um, once the war ends and their people start coming home, uh, once again, Qualities decides it's time to, uh, you know, like expand its line. Um, and so they give a couple new uh, adventure. So some of their characters from other comics get to their, get promoted to their own titles. Um, one of them is Kid Eternity, who was also, you know, like a, a fairly big seller, but was kind of, you know, surpassed, was, was passed on the track uh, by both Blackhawk and Plastic Man. And so Kid Eternity has gone from like the number one thing Quality was doing to at best number three. Um, you know, uh, uh, and, and really four, if you count the spirit, uh, reprints really, uh, as far as like kind of the importance of what they were doing, uh, the Barker who we talked about, uh, in, in the last episode, the, the adventures of an actual carnival Barker and his, you know, collection of, uh, circus freaks, uh, you know, like solving crimes and fighting crimes is sufficiently popular that they decide to give him a solo series as well, which lasts for 15 issues. Um, and then they start doing, uh, besides those, quality bringing in some new people who were not so much superhero guys, also start adding uh, non-superhero titles. And so in 46 and 47, they add several uh, humor titles to go along with their superhero line. And as the uh, post-war superhero sales start to fall for everybody... Um, Quality starts paying much more attention to its non-superhero lines and starts canceling uh, some of those other uh, uh, titles, right? Starts canceling some of those other uh, other issues. Crack uh, changes its format in 1949 uh, from being Crack, you know, the adventure and superhero titles for it, to being a Western. It becomes Crack Western. Uh, Smash uh, gets canceled and its numbering is picked up by at first a new set of reprints from the from the spirit quarterly right like the, if you remember that spirit had uh backup titles um Miss, mr mystic and lady luck they give lady luck uh, a a series of her own um that is just reprints once again of the stuff that she published uh, in the in the newspaper titles back in the in the earlier 40s um they start doing a bunch of romance titles and, uh, you know, they, they do both kind of, uh, you know, like straightforward romance fiction, but they also do a bunch of like gossip titles, right? They have comic book titles that are about movie stars and that sort of thing, especially if they can get anything about like, you know, secrets of the movies, right? Um, and they literally have titles called Hollywood Diary and Hollywood Secrets and Love Confessions and that sort of thing while they are canceling titles like National. Uh, Barker doesn't last very long, so that one gets canceled, right? And so by you know 1949, they are up to a bunch of uh, uh, titles, um, only a few of which now have superheroes in them at all. Blackhawk is still the big one, right? Blackhawk has managed to, unlike the rest of the superhero lines for it, has stayed popular. Its sales are still huge. Um, and so in 1950, Blackhawk actually gets a radio show uh that will last for you know 20 something episodes um and then in 1952 black hawk gets a serial movie 15 parter um that will you know plays at the uh, movie theaters it's one of actually the last of the great serial superhero movies and it stars kirk allen 
as Blackhawk himself. Kirk Allen was the guy who played Superman in the Superman serial as well. So this is all, you know, kind of like a big deal. When, when you're talking serials, uh, Kirk Allen is definitely, you know, royalty as far as the, 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 the guys that you could get for that kind of story, for that kind of series. But by the time we're hitting 1950 now, it's basically quality has become Blackhawk, to a lesser extent, Plastic Man, a couple of superhero titles that are, you know, just kind of barely hanging on, and a whole bunch of romance and and other stuff. They've gotten away from most of the other characters. Most of their costume guys um, have been retired and put away. And I think that is where we are going to cut off uh, this episode. And we will come back next episode to talk about uh, both how quality itself comes to an end as a company and what actually winds up happening to all of these superheroes that they used to publish. Absolutely. Join us again next time for the uh, end of quality as it was. or The, the exciting finale. Yeah, exactly. The end of there's There is no more quality in comics. Uh, thanks a lot. I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Have a good night. Have fun. Have fun.